can cry out Hosanna because of your incredible grace in our lives and your accomplished work. And we pray that you'd continue to be with us through this service. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I just want to highlight a couple of things and then I'll turn our attention to God's word. But the one is this, is uh, last couple of weeks we've had a couple of guests visiting with us who uh, needed accessibility and they were shocked at how many people were here and uh, that when they got here there was still space in the parking lot for them to park. So for you parking off-site over at Veneto and uh, at the rec center and over at Compass Community Hall so that people that are guests coming in or need accessibility uh, have spots in our, our only 20 spots in this parking lot, I just want to say thank you because I know it's a bit of a pain, I know it's a bit of a walk, but you continue to do that. And uh, so just thank you for doing that. And like this couple last week that came up to you, it just meant the world to them. They could pull in the lot. Um, you know, mom who's 91 is in a wheelchair and uh, there were spots, right? And they could wheel mom in and come in and not have to figure out how to, how to just reconfigure that. And uh, secondly, many of you know our year end is the end of August. And uh, you'll get a letter from our finance committee, I think, in the next week, uh, or next week, week and a half, uh, about kind of the year end and wanting to end strong. But I also want to thank you for your giving. Like, our finances have been really strong. God has used you to provide them. And you've just been faithful in honoring God with the wealth he's granted you. And I just want to say thanks, because as God does that, as he grants us uh, wealth, as he grants us, and we need to honor him with that wealth. I mean, when, when we have guests come, and I know it's holiday weekends, so we're smaller in our churches, is often a younger church when people come in, they're stunned at how young our church is. They're like, how does this work? And I'm like, we teach people to honor God with their wealth. And, and you've just been faithful in doing that. And you've been faithful in honoring God. You've been faithful in saying him first, like God first. And, and I know that sometimes comes with a great deal of challenge. And yet I just want to say thank you because as we come into like a budget that had to increase exponentially over the years, uh, when we ended up with a mortgage, and then God provided an interest-free mortgage, but we're still paying off $225,000 a year off of it to have it done prayerfully in four years. Um, he's been faithful in providing, and predominantly through us here. And so for your faithfulness in that, thank you. And then lastly, I've been really encouraged this summer at the number of our families who've gone to places like NBC, Muskoka Bible Conference. I know I was there speaking um, and Fair Havens, and they've just enjoyed good food, fellowship, great Bible teaching. And then this week, uh, my brother and I have been talking about our years past, like 30 years ago, when for about six summers we went to Kingdom Bound as teenagers and how much we loved it. We kind of organized ourselves. And Timmy and Amy Graham were going there this week. And so we, we went Wednesday. We just kind of drove in for Wednesday. Now, the deal was if we were going Wednesday to Kingdom Bound, we were staying over to possibly shop in the States on, uh, Friday, on Thursday. So that's what happened. Um, but we went Wednesdays at Darien Lake, Christian artists. I mean, to, to me, for me, the, the speaking can be hit and miss. I know the speaker Monday night. I know him well. And uh, he'd have been outstanding. The speaker... Uh, Wednesday night wasn't as strong in his gospel presentation. The music was amazing, though. Some of the songs we sang this morning, they were singing on Wednesday by the artists who, who lead them. And so as part of just you thinking through what refreshment looks like for you in the Lord, I'd encourage you to be thinking through, is that something that would be good for you? I mean, when we were talking with Tim and Amy, I, I said maybe next year a whole group of us need to go for that week and just enjoy God's presence, and go and worship, and especially as your kids start to get older, to introduce them to some Christian music that can help to influence them, and uh, what that looks like. You know, the truth is, I'm old enough that I'm like, unless it's a worship song going up, I'm like, I have no clue. Like, Trent, where are you? You're here. Like, you, we got a text from Avi saying, can we take a picture of, who was it? 
Toby Mac. He was the, the second artist. I'm like, I didn't know who Toby Mac was. I had no clue. Didn't know any, yeah, sorry. Didn't know any of his songs. Didn't know any. I knew nothing about him. And so we listened to three of Toby Mac's songs and went home. And, um, but he was the last artist. So we'd been through a number of artists. And he was good. I'm not saying he wasn't good. I'm just saying I was clueless. And, and, um, but when Abby was like, can you take a picture of Toby Mac for Trenton? Amy went right up to the front and went to security and said, hey, I need a picture for my daughter for her friend. Can I? And went, that's how you, did you see the picture? Yeah, nice, good. Um, and, uh, but all I'm saying is thinking through Christian refreshment. What, what, how will the Lord refresh you in the summer months? And, and for some people, something like Fairhaven's and NBC uh, or something like Kingdom Mount won't be your thing. But for more of us, it is. Uh, than, than maybe we've ever considered before. I mean, next week, Amy and I are going out east with Jewel and Ivy and Amy's family, and we'll spend a week at a cottage uh, on the ocean uh, in Halifax. And as part of that, like, we won't do anything. We'll probably cook all of our meals there. We'll go out one night to eat. Probably everything's just done there at the cottage. That's how we cottage. And, uh, and, so, and, so, and so in that time, like, we'll go to church on Sunday in Halifax. I haven't decided which one yet, but, but we'll go and, and hang out there and... Uh, and, and that might be your refreshment, which is fine, but I'll, I'll tell you, being there Wednesday uh, was also just a really good day. Hearing God's people sing, I went to the Theology Project, where, again, one of my friends was leading that, and it was just great to hear them talk about doctrine in front of a group of people. And so I just encourage you to think through what that looks like um, in your summer months and in summer months that are coming. Um, and uh, Jason and Beatrice, I see you guys. I saw you last week, but congratulations on Harrison, if we could... Uh, give them a big uh, applause. We are thankful for God's blessing in your life and for granting you guys with a second child. And uh, we'll be praying for you guys as uh, you raise two boys now. That's exciting. Courage. If you think about your hope, how certain is it? If you think about your hope, how certain is your hope? How certain is it? I mean, if... This week, financial calamity hit, how certain is your hope? If inflation continued to skyrocket, how certain is your hope? If you lost your job, how certain is your hope? I mean, how firmly do you believe in the existence of God? I've met with so many believers, or former believers, who talk about the deconstructing of their faith. And as I engage in conversation with them, sometimes I question whether they even had faith to deconstruct and what that looks like. But the existence of God, the person of Christ, the fact that God created us and our need for salvation, the accomplished work of Christ and his resurrection, the word of God and its certainty, its truthfulness from beginning to end. How certain... Firm is your hope. And is there a circumstance or a situation you could think of that if it came your way, it could cause you to waver in your faith or even cause your faith to disintegrate? Is there something that could come your way, a circumstance or a situation that could cause your faith to waver or even disintegrate? As we continue through the book of Acts, and we're now in part of Acts where we're looking at the trials of the Apostle Paul, Turn with me to Acts 21, verse 37. I went longer last week, further in the passage than I anticipated, um, well, until Saturday when I changed my sermon. 
um, because I wanted to talk about the prophetic word. If you haven't listened to last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to do so, as it's something we've been wrestling with as elders at a, as a church. But Acts 21.37 says this, As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? You speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarshish in Sicilia, a citizen, of no area, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood up on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. I'll just pause there for a moment. Remember the context here quickly. The, the Jews as Paul's entered Jerusalem, have just been killing Paul. They were executing him. So they're there at the end of chapter, just a few verses before here in chapter 21. They're executing Paul, which they're not allowed to do under Roman rule. The Romans show up because of what's going on. Obviously, they think he's the Egyptian that had led the revolt. Josephus talks about how there were 30,000 people here, the commander talks about 4,000, probably the number is somewhere between the two. Josephus always, he's the Jewish historian, uh, tended towards exaggeration. Um, but it could be here when the 4,000 are mentioned that it's the 4,000 that escaped with him because the man leading the revolt who was from Egypt escaped and they couldn't catch him. So the Romans show up. They think Paul is that Egyptian re uh, revolutionary. They arrest him. They put him in chains. And they both do that to protect him from the Jewish people that are going to kill him. And they do it because they're trying to figure out what's going on. Like, what, what's happening here? Paul then says, right, bleeding. You got to remember that. Like, they have been beating him. Bleeding. Hurt. Wounded. In chains. Paul asks if he can speak to the crowd that was just trying to kill him. That takes guts, doesn't it? They're leading him away to prison where he's going to be safe. And he says, well, I'd like to address the crowd. Now, a couple of things are really important, right? You can't see this in the English. It's very rare that I do this because I want you to know how reliable your English translations are. And they are. But here he speaks a formal Greek. A fluent formal Greek. And so they're surprised by that because they thought he was this Egyptian Revolutionary. And so, and so you can't catch it quite in the English, but that statement he makes is a formal Greek without accent, likely. And so he speaks that, and they're like, whoa, 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 weren't you the Egyptian that was trying to cause this revolt? Because the Egyptians also, and again, I think it was better, better translated, oh, you speak Greek, not do you speak Greek, oh, you speak Greek. Because even the Egyptians in that day, because of how far the Roman had reached, would have been speaking Greek. Um, uh, they thought, we're confused. We thought you were someone else. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Like, are you ever caught guard when you listen to some of your, the actors that you appreciate? I'm not saying I love these actors. It's just they've caught me off guard, right? You watch a movie, Tom Holland's in it, and then you hear him give an interview like he has an accent. But he didn't when he was this kid from New York. What's going on? Andrew Garfield, same thing. He's got an accent, right? When you hear him in an interview, but... You know, you watch him in one of his movies, you're like, there's no accent. And so Paul here is a master of language. He knows Hebrew fluently and speaks it, whereas many Jews don't know Hebrew in this day, 
right? In the 6th century when the Assyrians came and occupied the northern kingdom and took the leaders out. And so you have the beginning of the Exodus that then, of course, with the Babylonians where they destroyed Jerusalem and brought everyone out until it was rebuilt uh, over 70 years later, beginning of its rebuilt as people were coming back under the Persian rule and allowed to go back into Jerusalem. You had this dysphoria, right, where the Jews are spread all through the world. They're learning other dialects. And as they're learning other dialects, they all learn this language called Aramaic, which is what they'd have commonly spoken to each other because many of them wouldn't have known Hebrew. It's why Paul addresses them in Aramaic, right? And so for six centuries, they're learning this other language. I heard this illustration that was very helpful for me in this. If you go back 100 years pastors would have all known Latin from all around the world. It was just a requirement that you learned and studied Latin. So when world gatherings would gather from around the world, and pastors or theologians would gather, and they wouldn't know each other's language, they would all know Latin, and they would speak to each other in Latin. I found that fascinating as I began to read that. And that's similar to what happens here with Aramaic. So Paul now turns to the crowd, and he begins to speak in Aramaic. Now here he does mention briefly in verse 39 his upbringing, right? That he's Jewish and he was born in Tarsus. Then he says, I'm a citizen of no ordinary city. I don't know if there he's beginning to claim his Roman uh, citizenship because he's a Roman citizen or if he's talking about the fact that he was raised in Jerusalem, which he mentions in a few minutes. You can flip a coin as to which one you want to take. Verse 1 of chapter 22. So brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they were very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarshish, but brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem. I studied under Gamal uh, and was thoroughly trained in our law, in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. I arrested both men and women. I threw them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So he shows respect in his address, brothers and fathers, right? Fellow Jews. And fathers, meaning that there are people there, and even though he's a Pharisee among the Jews, now saved, there are people there in authority, like high priest, a high priest, but the high priest that would have sent him in the days he was going to Damascus is not the high priest now, but you, you obtained your, your title even though you didn't obtain the power when that transition occurred. And so he's showing his respect. He speaks in Aramaic, so he's like, wow, he's a well-educated Jew. I mean, he can speak in Greek, he knows Hebrew, he's now speaking in Aramaic, everyone listens to him. And he says, I want you to know about my heritage. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus. I was brought up right here in Jerusalem. I studied under one of our great leaders, right, uh, who was of the tradition of the Hillel, right? And so he's like, I, I studied under him. And he's showing how Jewish he is. He's saying, I was as zealous for the law as any of you. In fact, I persecuted the church. If you doubt my, my uh, passion for persecuting the Jews, go and ask the former high priest. Go and ask the Sanhedrin. They gave me the letters. I mean, these people, just like Paul who told him to go and execute the Christians, are still alive, many of them, most of them. And so he's saying, you can go check it out. You can go ask them about how zealous I was for the law. I was one who would take followers of the way, that's Christians, 
and put them to death. I arrested men and women. I put them into prison. And you can go and have it all checked out. Then he says, on his way to Damascus, verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said. Go into Damascus. There you will be told all you've been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to me. He was a devout observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to our people of what they have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, call on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately. These people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another, imprisoning, imprisoning and beating those who believed in you. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. The Lord said, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul recounts his testimony. Bleeding, bruised, injured, asked to address the very crowd that was trying to kill him. And in that broken state, he recounts his testimony to them. The very thing they wanted to kill him for. That takes guts. Doesn't it? That takes courage. His hope was secure, certain. He could say without any doubt to live as Christ and to die his game. He was just at death's door for sharing his faith. And as he's being led away to safety, he pauses to share his faith. He'd have kept going at that moment. They just stopped him because he talked about going to the Gentiles. But just note a few things. This testimony is recounted for us three times in the book of Acts. That talks about how important this is as Luke's recording acts in God's word. I mean, I said this last week, but it's stunning for me that eight chapters of the Bible is given to the trials of Paul. That's longer than Philippians, longer than Colossians, longer than many of our books of the Bible. Eight full chapters are given to the trials of Paul. We get lost in these chapters typically, but it says to me these are critical to our faith. It's a third of the book of Acts. A third of the book of Acts are given to the trials of Paul here in Jerusalem and then in Rome. So a few things. He talked about how he was going to Damascus, right? Passionate about persecuting the Jewish people that had uh, come to faith in Christ, Christians who turned to faith in Christ, um, specifically Jewish people who had done that. 
he falls to the ground. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in front of all of them, he says, who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord, Yahweh. He says, this is the Lord. And he tells them who the Lord says he is, that he's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the only way he can claim that he heard Jesus of Nazareth is if he knew that he'd been risen to life again, that he'd been resurrected, that he was no longer dead. So right here in front of the people that were trying to kill him, he claims resurrection, that that's what's happened to Jesus. He said, my companions who were there, they saw the light. They didn't understand the voice. So Paul says, what shall I do, Lord? And he says, go, get up into Damascus. A man named Ananias, who he claims there, right? Rightly so, who is a Christian. But to the crowd, he says, he's a devout observer of the law, highly respected by the Jews living there. He wants, doesn't want to throw Ananias under the bus, right? So he, he just lets them know that he's still a devout observer of the law and someone who's well-respected by the Jews. But Brother Saul, so someone who's come to faith in Christ, receive your sight. And then, again, verse 14, to show the continuity of Old and New Testament, Paul's saying, the God of our ancestors, so God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, Jesus, and hear words from his mouth. And you will be witnesses of what you've seen and heard. What are you waiting for? So go and be baptized. So Paul was baptized because he had been saved. And then he's told to go to the Gentiles. He's in Jerusalem, experiences a trance. He's told to go to the Gentiles. And at that point, verse 22, the crowd listens to Paul until he says this. They raise their voices. They shout, get rid of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So the people immediately react when he says it's for the Gentiles because the Jewish people believe that salvation was only to them. They immediately react. Kill him. Kill him. Get rid of this guy. As they're doing so, they throw their cloaks off and they fling dust into the air. Now, why do they do that? I've got a couple of theories on that. It's just really quick. It's either saying we disassociate ourselves with him or it's symbolizing a stoning um, that they can't actually go out and do because they're forbidden to kill someone or to execute someone. And then he's directed to be flogged. Flogging was awful. Paul had been struck by rods a number of times in his ministry, but he hadn't been flogged yet. And flogging is a leather strip with shrapnel on it, piece of wood. You'd beat them with the wood and with the shrapnel that was on the, the leather strap. And many people who were flogged, you can read this in history, died from flogging or were severely crippled. So at this point, they're going to flog Paul, the apostle, and he's about to experience the worst beating he's ever experienced in his entire life. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, uh, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man's a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he said. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul said, I was born one. And those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately, and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized he put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Now, some people say when he's saying this, like, oh, wow, the commander says, I had to pay a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. He's saying, I guess anybody can get it now. It's really cheap. That's not what he's saying. I believe it's actually the opposite. 
When Paul's saying, I was born a Roman citizen, meaning, because there's only two ways to become a Roman citizen, well, three ways. You were born a Roman citizen, like Paul was, but he's Jewish, so how did that happen? That's a big question, right? You were awarded Roman citizenship because of your service to Rome. That's likely what happened to either Paul's father or grandfather. There was a season, about 60 B.C., where people could be awarded Roman citizenship for about 100 years um, if they had done something incredible for Rome. They, they just had this great service for Rome, and they'd be awarded Roman citizenship. So this is either Paul's father or grandfather, because Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. So what the commander is saying is, well, I had to pay a lot of money to get it, and you were born into it. So... I'm in trouble for having put you in chains. He's shocked that he's done it. So I want to just jump from the text there for a few minutes this morning and think about courage and our hope. Are you so convinced of your faith that you could do what Paul just did? Are you so convinced of your hope that even after facing death, you could stand up to face death again because you're so convinced that the people killing you need to hear the gospel. Is that how strong your faith is? I mean, think of Scripture. Think of Deborah, judge and prophet, who courageously led Israel against Jabin, king of Canaan. Right? Jalil uh, offers refuge uh, she's a female to the commander of Caesarea in her tent while her husband is out. He falls asleep, and while Deborah is leading the Israelites to victory, and they're all looking uh, for, for Caesarea, the commander of the Canaanite army, this woman takes a tent peg, and while he's asleep and exhausted, thinking she's friend, she's on God's side, she drills the tent peg through his head, and he dies. And grants victory. I mean, that was courage. That was courage. Both for Deborah and for this woman. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. I mean, there he is. And he has said after three years of drought that there's going to be a face-off on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal can come and they can cry out to their God. And then he'll cry out to his God. They're there. I mean, he is outnumbered enormously. Twelve stones are brought. He asks for four jugs of water to be brought while the sacrifice is there on the altar. They dump four jugs on. He says, bring four more. They dump four more. A ditch has been now dug around the altar. He says, bring four more. They do it, 12 time, they do it three times, twelve jugs of water. He says, the, the water, so much water has come that the sacrifice, the altar, and the ditch is full of water. Elijah has such courage that he cries out to God. He simply prays to him that God would answer his prayer and send fire from heaven, and God does. And the fire consumes the sacrifice, the stones, and the water in the ditch. Think of Esther. She's a Jew who's become the queen of Persia. But in the regulations of Persia, she is not allowed to enter into the king's presence, her husband, unless he summons for her, unless he calls for her. Her people are about to be executed. 
and she's their only hope. And courageously she goes into the king's presence to allow the king to know that his most trusted advisor, the person he spends time with every day, which he wouldn't have done with Esther, the one that he trusts with his very life, is out to kill her people. She courageously goes before him and does that. And the king takes his trusted advisor and thrusts him on the pole that was prepared for the leader of the Jewish people at that time. Think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who's crying out that the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to ransack the land unless there's repentance. He's placed into a pit, into a cistern where he's going to die. Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, whose name simply means slave of the king, slave of the king, slave of the king. Every time he would have heard his name called Ebed-Melech, he would have been reminded, slave of the king. A Cushite courageously goes into the king's presence and lets the king know that what's happened to Jeremiah is wrong. The king ordered it and that Jeremiah needs to be rescued. Ebed-Melech then courageously goes out with ropes and rags and rescues Jeremiah from the pit with a group of 30 men that the king allows to go. Now Ebed-Melech's life is at risk. Jeremiah is brought up out of the pit. And if you're brought out of the pit and you are thrown into the pit for declaring the word of God, you might think, well, and you're left there to die, right? He was left there to die, to starve to death. You might think, well, that's the end of that. I did my best. Where do you find him in the next verse? In the temple courts, again, declaring the word of the Lord. That's courage. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Jews in Babylon, where King Nebuchadnezzar creates this giant statue of himself and says, when the music plays, if you do not bow down and bow to it, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. Oh, king, they say, live forever. We will not bow down. Do you remember what they said? Our God is able to rescue us from the fiery furnace, but even if he does not, even if today we perish, we will not bow down to the statue. The king orders it, heated seven times. It's normal heat. The men throwing them in perish doing so. And a fourth man appears with them. Looks like the son of the gods. Of course, I believe it's Jesus pre-incarnate, the theophany. He shows up in the furnace with them, and they come out. I love this part. They weren't burnt. Their hair wasn't singed. I mean, listen, our barbecue lighter, it doesn't work anymore. And so I got these long matches because I used to throw matches into the barbecue. But you turn the gas on, you throw the matches in, you hope for the best. And one day, the match had kind of got caught, and I went to move it, and as I moved it, it flared up and all my hair and my nose hair and my eyebrow hair. Some of you may remember this because it was a Saturday. I showed up at church the next day. It looked bad. I wasn't burnt. Just all my hair was singed. And it just was a poof. That was all it was. And I smelled smoke for three days in my nostrils. It was awful. They didn't smell like smoke and not a hair on their body was singed. That's how much God protected them. You think of Mary who's told by an angel that she's going to give birth to God's son. She's had no relations with a human being, not with Joseph. And Joseph is engaged to be married to her, and she knows 
that when she begins to show that everybody's going to accuse her and Joseph, righteous people, of sleeping together before marriage, of having sex outside of marriage, when they don't do it. And she says to the angel, what? May it be unto me as the Lord has said, I am his servant. That takes courage. A huge amount of courage. And we live in a day where it takes courage to be a believer. We live in a day where the ideology and philosophy of our world tells us that we've lost our minds for being Christians. That we're anti-intellectual. That what we believe is no different than any other myth in human history. But what we've believed is the truth. What we believe about God is true. What we believe about humanity is true. What we believe about Jesus is true. What we believe about salvation is true. What God has said, because it's true, will stand up to any philosophy, any ideology on this planet. Is that not great news? Because it's true. The question about Christianity is simple. It's this. Is it true? And the answer through all of history has been simply said as this. The answer is yes. It's always been found to be true. And so that means in our day what it says about gender is true. That means in our day what it says about the exclusivity of Jesus. Him being the way, the truth, the life is true. That means what the Bible says, what the word of God says about salvation, about eternity, about our hope is all true. And maybe one day you'll find yourself in a moment of dialogue with someone, in a moment of difficulty with someone, where it may even become combative. Or maybe you'll even find yourself one day where you're being actually persecuted for your faith. As you're being led up those stairs, by the Romans, would you have the courage to turn to the very people that are persecuting you and say, before I go, I want to tell you about the God who saved me. Because it's true. Because it's true. And the hope I have, I want you to have. Because it's true. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, God, for Paul's incredible witness and testimony even to us this day. That after being beaten, after they were attempting to kill him, and the Romans intervened, that he still stood in front of the crowd with courage to declare what you had done in his life. God, we confess we live in a day where we, we can just so easily, God, be pushed by this world and we can just shrink back. And in doing so, feel like we have nothing to offer, nothing to say, nothing to dialogue with when God, what you've granted us is what is true. And so God, starting with me, would you grant us the courage we see in Scripture, whether it's Deborah's courage or Esther's courage, whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, whether it's the Apostle Paul, 
Elijah, Mary, God, whomever it would be, would you grant us this kind of courage that your spirit grants your people so that in a kind and yet, God, faithful way, we would declare the truth of what you have said because we know what you've done in our life. And we've met the resurrected Savior who is indeed alive. And we long for those around us to be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.